Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and this week's guest on the programme is Mary Beard, the Cambridge classicist whose book on the Roman triumph was itself something of a triumph when it appeared at the end of last year. The triumph was a ceremony which seems to sum up what we think about ancient Rome, the splendour, the militarism, the organisation, and, well, the triumphalism. The victorious general, dressed as a god, would be drawn through the streets of Rome on a chariot. He'd be surrounded by his raucous troops, his exotic prisoners of war, and his opulent plunder from his campaign. But Mary Beard believes that when you begin to scratch away at the surface of the triumph, you discover there was a lot more to it than that. I asked her why she felt it provided such fertile material for rethinking ancient Rome. It's a brilliant cultural phenomenon to think about Rome because, first of all, like so many things about Roman culture, buildings, uh, literature, ceremony, it's gobsmacking, it smacks you in the face, it's it's larger than life, it's colourful, written up to the skies, amazing. It's the kind of, it's a ceremony of such wealth and lavishness that it sums up empire, exploitation, military victory, luxury, everything that you think about the Romans. But why it's so good is because once you've been gobsmacked by it and you start to think, what's really going on here? Then, of course, like everything to do with Rome, it gets more and more complicated. The more you look at it, the more interesting, the less obvious, the less simply militaristic it seems. It turns out to be a ceremony which is certainly a wonderfully emotionally engaging for us and for them. The idea of a, of the victorious general going through the streets with his booty, with his victorious army, just incredible. But it also turns out to be problematic, to be worrying, to make the general look a fool as well as to make the general look brilliant and all-conquering. And so it kind of says to you, look how multivalent, multifarious and unexpected Roman culture is when you look at it harder. You know, is success a good thing? Of course success is a good thing. Is success a bit dangerous? Golly, it's a bit dangerous. You know, because what happens to you when you're so successful? You know, when you have conquered half of Asia Minor, as they called it, Turkey, as we would call it, you know, what happens next? And what the triumph does is elevate the general, celebrate Roman success, and also provide a vehicle for worrying about it and wondering about it. And for us, it provides a way of thinking about I think just how complicated Roman culture was against the popular image of its militaristic simplicity. Yeah. It shows the Romans aren't simple. One of the things which I took from your book, which I hadn't really thought about before, was the awarding or the, the claiming of a triumph wasn't a straightforward affair. I mean, I suppose I naively thought that a general would have some great victory abroad and he would come back to Rome with his troops and with his booty and a triumph would kind of happen almost automatically. And you show in the book that 
the actual deciding to have a triumph in the first place was was fraught with all sorts of complexities and, and decisions that had to be taken. Yeah, that's uh, the point is uh, for Rome, as for any other culture, that success has to be granted to you. You, know, you can go and thwack the enemy as hard as you like, but what counts as success is the fact that your peers and your community at home say that that's successful, that they judge it success. Mm. There has to be a kind of communal validation of your success. And Rome is a very competitive culture. These guys who are fighting Rome's wars are deeply rivalrous one with another. And Roman culture as a whole is very, very concerned not to, at least until we get to the dictatorship of Caesar and the Roman Empire, not to let one person get above another. So everything's terribly carefully calibrated. So you want to be very careful about who you let triumph, for what reason. You don't want to have any pipsqueak getting a triumph and claiming that he's, the, you know, he's done, done the right thing by Rome. You have to... You know, it's it's very very carefully watched, and there's loads of jealousy around, because look, think about it. The triumph is a ceremony in which not only does a general process through the streets with his booty and with his soldiers, he's dressed up as a god. You know, this is about about as close to being superhuman you can ever be in Rome, even if it's only for a day. So of course it's it's rigorously policed and uh, and watched over and jealously guarded by the rest of the roman senators and people you know then you know, it's not going to be a ceremony for anybody who says he's had a great victory overseas and also the general was allowed to bring armed men into the city of rome which was otherwise demilitarized so presumably there's also potential for, for danger there. I suppose the Romans are worried about the armed men coming into the city, but I suspect they're so pissed that it doesn't matter really. I mean, um, it is the only occasion in which soldiers come into the city of Rome under arms, that's true. What's interesting is that it's never used, as you might think, as a great excuse for a takeover. I know what I shall do, you know, I shall have my triumph mm. and my army behind me, I shall then take the Capitoline Hill, you know. That never happens. As I say, I suspect it's because the soldiers are so drunk that they'd be useless at it. Because mm. it's, you know, it's, what is it? It's a, it's a carnivalesque celebration mm. as well as as well as in addition to it being a militaristic one. And one thing we know about the soldiers is that the soldiers are busy there singing dirty songs about the general. So another way in which the general, of course, is brought down to size is that the soldiers sing naughty songs at his expense. You mentioned the bringing down to size and I suppose one of the, the major preoccupations of modern scholarship there is this slave who allegedly stood behind the general on his chariot, consistently reminding him of his own mortality, that he was a man. But one of the things your book does is sort of pick up the fabric of that story. Yeah, the, the slave behind the general is almost modern scholarship's favourite bit of the triumph. And not just scholarship, 
uh, in the closing scenes of Patton the movie, General Patton's career and his final fall is put. It's a lovely voiceover where the guy says, you know, and uh, in Rome, ancient Rome, there was a slave behind a general at his triumph, reminding him that he was only a man, which is, of course, the moral of the Patton story. What's interesting about it is that the more you look at that story and say, well, how do we know all that? Like so much about Roman history and particularly about the triumph, it's kind of fascinatingly elusive when you get to try and pin it down. And the story is really a Christian story about the Roman triumph, not a traditional pagan story. And in fact, the absolutely canonical frame of words that every textbook tells you is what was said to the general as he triumphed, which is, look behind you, remember you're a man, remember you're a man, is found only in the work of a second century Christian apologist, a Christian ideologue, who is actually trying to critique the whole of the Roman pagan religious enterprise and particularly to critique the idea that anybody could ever think that the Roman emperor himself or similarly Roman bigwigs could ever be gods. So there's a kind of a Tertullian, uh, you know, particularly nasty piece of work, was, uh, an African ideological Christian is using this as part of, partly to expose the illogicality of Roman pagan practice. Now, it's more of a puzzle than that and it's more interesting than that because Tertullian didn't make it up and obviously there is some idea which you see in a couple of other Roman writers and also in a couple of images of the triumph that somebody is behind the general in his chariot. Must have been a bit of a squash. Chariot wasn't very big. And partly what that somebody is doing is holding up this fantastically heavy crown, which otherwise a poor old general going through the streets of Rome would be completely weighed down by. Now, at some point, somebody starts to put the presence of that slave accompanier of the general who may or may not have been always there some generals might have said I can carry the crown perfectly well myself thank you very much they start to put that into the context of of, of whispering at the general and warning him but it certainly seemed to me like an awful lot of other things in Roman history we kind of get we get a, a very sort of fleeting glimpse of something that occasionally happened or may have happened sometimes we turn it into a complete orthodoxy and norm you know and now people do that all over the place when they're trying to reconstruct rome you know they pick up one reference you know, pliny will say for example do you know there was some um, uh, do you know why the general has a phallus under his triumphal chariot? Oh, that's because it's got to keep off the evil eye, etc., etc. Now, there is no other evidence whatsoever, apart from Pliny, that the general's triumphal chariot had a phallus dangling underneath it. But one little nugget like that, and people construct a whole image as if from Romulus 
for a thousand years and later, every general got out some stuffed phallus, put it under his chariot in order to keep off the evil eye. And one of the things that my book is trying to do is to not to be nihilistic. It doesn't want to say, look, you can't believe any of this. But it says, look, you have to be terribly careful about treating a culture that is changing, is expanding beyond measure and lasts for over a millennium to try and pretend that anything always happened at Rome must be wrong. And we're ever so we're terribly keen and we think, look, the Romans, what a load of legalistic conservative people they were, you know. At least if Rome in Rome, unlike other cultures, if you find something happening once, it must always have happened because the Romans were very conservative guys, weren't they? Uh, I'm trying to say, look, that isn't true Rome is a, a, a radically innovative culture and you know you can't go scrounging through ancient evidence to try and find uh, examples of things that always happen. You make a very telling comparison in the book between Christmas and the triumph and saying it's like you know trying to explain what Christmas is and when it has 2,000 years of, yeah. of varying practice and ritual and belief and, and, and change and I thought that was that was quite a, a good way to sort of convey it. Yeah I'm glad you like the Christmas comparison because I think it's it seems to me to hit the nail on the head about how we think about ritual and tradition and how scripted rituals are and what makes them ritual and how we see it in relation to a set of practices which go back hundreds, hundreds of years with all sorts of associations that we may avow or disavow, but still somehow go together to make up the ritual. And Christmas also works in comparative terms because you also get people saying, you know, things ain't what it used to be, things have gone downhill, it's all much more material. It's all commercial, <laughs> it's all commercial now. Right, you know, there must have been hundreds of people in Rome saying, oh, these triumphs aren't what they used to be. Mm. And we know that's terrible nostalgia. And yet we know it also, part of the ritual of Christmas is saying it's not what it used to be. That's what, you know, that's what Christmas is all about. What I thought it was quite a good example for was sort of this idea of does it always happen the same way? Because the answer in Christmas is no, it doesn't, right? It really doesn't happen the same way. On the other hand, there are sets of assumptions about how it will happen that you'd know if you were breaking. I mean, you can decide to have goose or turkey. You can have it at three o'clock in the afternoon or at seven o'clock at night or whatever. But it will be really, really weird to make your centrepiece Caesar salad. And there are some kind of, <laughs> so there are parameters that don't have to be enforced by anybody. But if you buy into the ritual of Christmas, you've got all sorts of, all sorts of freedom to do what you like. But it sort of wouldn't be Christmas if it was Caesar salad followed by, oh heavens, even creme brulee. You know, it's going to be Christmas bud and some bit of bird, isn't it? And what you're trying to reconstruct when you reconstruct the Roman triumph is what those analogous assumptions are. We know what our assumptions about Christmas are. We know what we're allowed to break, what we're allowed to do differently, and it's still to count. So in the case of the triumph, what you're trying to do is not to say what always happens, because nothing always happens. You're trying to say what sort of things, what do the Romans think when they think triumph 
and it's got the same very similar amount of leeway and discretion and difference while at the same time I suspect feels just as traditional even if it's done differently. And given that thousand year history and given those parameters for what counts as a triumph why do you think modern scholarship has spilled so much ink on the search for origins? Why is the Ur triumph such a it's very odd, isn't it, that we... I mean, I, to some extent, the, the kind of the easy answer is to say, heavens, you know, aren't classicists stuck in the 19th century? You know, <laughs> what, what did the 19th century want to know about everything? Where it started, you know? And somehow classicists have got kind of locked in the where did it all start? But much as I was tempted by that explanation, I think that it doesn't... It simply it doesn't quite add up. I think that what's going on is a much more difficult and and complicated trade-off between Roman historical practice and its origins. And I think also it's it's about Roman religion and its relationship to the triumph. Now, there's been a huge amount of debate about whether the triumph is a religious ceremony or not. It's almost a completely fruitless debate. It ends up at the Temple of Jupiter, Optimus Maximus, and it ends up with a sacrifice. In some way, this is a religious occasion. And I think there's always been this sense that if you buy into some traditional views about how the Romans were, which is they didn't change anything, they were terribly conservative and very religious, <laughs> one of the things that that enables you to do, it's got a payoff, it enables you to say, well, look, if we understand what Rome is like in the first century in religious terms, we're very conservative from religion, we can actually use that as a, as a glass through which to go back to the bits of Rome that we don't really understand, for which there's no contemporary literary or very little even material evidence. And so there is a, partly because the Romans were so interested in early Rome and what early, how early Rome, you know, what were the seeds that made this the greatest culture materially and and military that the world at that point had ever seen? Why was Rome successful? There was always a sense that something was there originally that, that, pre that was a precondition for that. Now, if you can say, look, the triumph is there as a, is a, as a glass through which, if we look at it carefully, we might be able to go back to the very origins of Roman culture. Then what we might find in that is we might understand why Rome did conquer the world. You know, we might we might start to see how it is that Rome managed to grow from being a piddling little village by the Tiber to being a world empire. Now, I think that's a good way of seeing it. I think also what happens is that, although that is in some ways driving it, or that is underlying people's preoccupations with the early triumph, I think there are these kind of historical backwaters that become more and more interesting to the obsessives amongst the community. And I think the early triumph is a kind of, is a good one of where people can, you know, where theories, theories are untestable, uh, everybody can play, and it 
it played into the idea too of the of kind of authenticity of Roman culture. I mean, one of the the things that happens, I think, if you you read a lot of Roman literature, is you start to believe the Romans about their own nostalgia about themselves. You know, you start to believe the oh my god, it, we are just hopeless. Once upon a time, we were really better, and this tends it tends to make you think, well, actually, what I do want to know about them. You know, I don't want to know about the corrupt period of Rome. I want to know when Rome was Rome and men were men and boys were boys. And that's another kind of drag trying to take you back to the origin. Now, part of what my book's trying to do is to say, look, for heaven's sake, let's find out about the Roman triumph at the time when people are writing about it. You know, we have nothing. We know nothing about the 7th or 8th centuries BC. Absolutely nothing. Even when people tell you we do, we don't. So why don't we actually, for change, look at all this decadent stuff and see what you get out of it there? But it's really going against the grain of what's still done. There's still There are still books and articles being written trying to say, where did it all start? I think it might actually not have started till the 4th century BC. How about you? Well, really, we really don't know. And I'm, am I right in remembering that as triumphs themselves under the empire became rarer and rarer, the volume of writing about them and reflecting upon them became greater and greater? There is a nasty inverse ratio between <laughs> the uh, the frequency of the performance of the ritual itself and the amount that is written about it. I mean, if you reckon that in the Republic up to the dictatorship of Caesar, from the mythical Romulus to when the, the Roman Empire under the emperor starts, you perhaps have a triumph every, every couple of years. It's quite frequent, sometimes more than that, sometimes a bit less, but an average every two years. After the reign of Augustus, right through to the end of the Roman Empire, the triumph is severely restricted, partly because only emperors and their families now triumph. And partly because even they don't do it very much. Refusing triumph seemed to become more common. Than yeah, very emperors. sexy. You say, no, 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 no triumph for me. I am not, no, I couldn't possibly. Right. And is that because the risk was greater of you know, becoming a cropper? Well, my view is, yes, honestly, my view is that this is a high-risk ceremony and canny emperors knew that you did it once <laughs> and you didn't do it too often. Uh, it's all, it is also the case, you know, there is a more mundane reason, actually, that after the reign of Augustus, big conquests under the reign of Augustus, big again with Trajan, but there weren't such major campaigns. Now, I think that's a very boring reason for not having a triumph, you know, that actually if the Romans had wanted to triumph, they'd have managed even if they weren't conquering anything. But there's a, I think that it goes hand in hand. And the triumph was morphing into something else. It wasn't. It wasn't about a campaign so much as a sort of assertion of imperial power. Yeah, it becomes a coronation ritual, really. I mean, Augustus's triumph, his threefold triumph at the beginning of his reign, is a sort of coronation ritual. When Vespasian and Titus come back after the civil war in sixty nine, and they've defeated the Jews in the Jewish revolt, their triumph is likewise a coronation ritual. So it's changing into something different. But it becomes more and more interesting to Roman culture. So while it's not being celebrated, it's being written about like mad. Now, again, that's a bit misleading because we have precious little Roman literature anyway before the first century BC. We have a bit, but not very much. But all the same, you do get a sense that the triumph both morphs into 
a royal, a ritual of royalty, honestly. But it also becomes what people have called a ritual in ink, you know, that it is performed and reperformed on paper. Uh, people write about it. And I suppose, in a way, when it's a bit like the uh, English British coronations, in a sense. I remember when I was a kid, we got given all sorts of exercises to do, which was shown a picture of Queen Elizabeth's coronation and asked to describe it. We never witnessed it. We weren't that old. But somehow it was being replayed for new generations and through their own writing and pictures. And that must be what happened with the triumph. You get wonderful triumphal imagery, which dominates the city of Rome. I mean, you get what we call triumphal arches aren't quite as triumphal. They're not, they're not often not put up particularly to celebrate a triumph and certainly not have the general go through. But the one thing that we miss on triumphal arches that we can still see standing is we miss what was on top of them, which was almost always the emperor and his family in a triumphal chariot, which is a very distinctive kind of chariot, on top of the arch. So you'd have gone through Rome in, let's say, you know, 100 AD or 150 AD, and the landscape would have been sort of dominated above your sight line by triumphing generals mm. in chariots, accompanied by victories and all sorts of things. So it becomes an extremely important visual marker of Roman power, even when it's not being done, and partly sort of because it's not being done or it becomes a more morphable symbol in the sense that it isn't happening all the time. You've said that we, you know, we can never recover what the first triumph was and what it was like, but equally the last triumph, it's difficult to say if something's big, turning into something else, it's difficult to say when and what the last triumph was. Yes, you can't, I mean, depends what you think a triumph is. And so people have argued almost as fruitlessly about what the last triumph is as they have about what the first triumph was. And it just depends what criteria you adopt to kind of count as a triumph. If you say, as is perfectly reasonable, that triumphs only happen in Rome, then anything that happens in Constantinople doesn't count, however much like a triumph it looks. If, on the other hand, you say the triumph is an exportable ritual, and they're calling it triumph, then it can happen in Constantinople too. If you say, but actually the triumph needs to be to a to Jupiter, you can't have a Christian triumph. That's only a kind of imitation. Mm. You know, Christians might have taken it over, but isn't the triumph any longer? Then of course, you know, that stops with Constantine. So it's quite interesting looking at how people have argued about what the last triumph is, because it reveals what they think is the essential core of the ritual. The book is in part about the triumph and how the Romans saw the triumph and how later scholars have seen the triumph. But you also say you want the book to be to be a manifesto of sorts. And I wanted you to say a little bit mm. about in what way, because obviously you, you are contesting various things about the way the Roman world has been presented in, in later scholarship. Yeah, I'm interested in saying, look, how can, how can you challenge the kind of Asterix and the Romans image that we tend to have of Rome. I mean, part of the point of saying, look, the triumph is a very, is a perilous ritual, it's a fragile ritual, 
it's one in which the general is likely to lose. The general can be humiliated. You know, Pompey tries to go through the great arch with his elephants and he gets stuck and doesn't half feel a real stupid fool. You know, Caesar's axle breaks and his chariot triumphs in the Roman imagination are constantly threatened by mishap, undermining, humiliation. And that is actually saying, it's, it's signalling to you, those stories signal to you, that this ritual, not only this ritual, this ritual is a much more complicated and multifaceted kind of celebration of victory. It's just as worried about victory as we are. It's also saying that the Romans are worried about victory. Uh, uh, you know, we, you know we, have, we have so determined to turn a blind eye to Roman subtlety, humour and sophistication because the Romans do a very good job for us being bridge builders and thugs. The Greeks are a sort of sophisticated guys who go around sort of thinking about the meaning of life and the Romans conquer people. And those kind of symbols of, of difference are terribly convenient for modern culture to, to use and to think about, as you can see if you look at how Rome appears in movies. Mm. I'm trying to say, look, the reason that we don't see the Romans as being sophisticated is because we're not looking in the right place. And you have to, you have to say, look, look in a different way, think in a different way. And you're asking the wrong questions. And you're asking the wrong questions. I mean, part of the the gamble, you know, what I, was, this was a big day, this book. It's saying, I want to say that the Romans are intellectually interesting. They speak to us. I don't think they're relevant to us. That's a kind of, you know, that's a complete red herring that people talk about relevance. But they can speak to us and we can engage with them and they're phenomenally interesting. And they've been written off, partly because we believe their own propaganda amongst themselves as being a folks be larger than life and see horribly violent. Some of those bits are all true, but it's only part of the case. So the idea is, what's the, the gamble is, take the one ceremony where Romans are absolutely seen at their worst, right? Both at their best, their, at their most gobsmacking for us, but also at their worst. And really look at that, tear that ceremony apart, and you will see something completely different about the Romans at the very heart of the, the, the ceremony, which most of all for us marks their crude militarism. And you can see it really, I think, from the very beginning of the book. And the thing that I started off with it's a quote from Seneca, poor old Seneca, Nero's tutor, thinking about all the transitoriness of, of glory and all this kind of thing. And he has a wonderful quote which says, people who commit small sacrilege get punished. People who commit large sacrilege get triumphs. And when I read that, I could hardly believe it. You know, I thought I'd read Seneca before always missed this because it just it was it was the 21st century joke it was small criminals end up in prison big criminals end up in the house of lords joke absolutely Seneca hitting the nail on the head seeing through this ceremony to its soft underbelly so what I wanted to do was expose that soft underbelly. I also wanted though, I think there's, there's two ways in which it's a manifesto. One it's a manifesto for Rome, not not a kind of 
apology for not an apologia, but actually a, a claim for its interest to us. It's also a, a claim, there's a series of claims being made about what we can and can't know and how we can be honest about what we can and can't know. And also the idea that, you know, in part, what is interesting about the, the Romans is how we find out about them, not just what they did. The process of history is, is in some ways what's the most interesting thing about doing history. In the end, it doesn't matter a jot whether the Roman triumphing general had a slave behind him saying, remember, you're a man or not. You know, nothing in the world is going to change, whether I, you know, whichever of those hypotheses is true. But what you can learn in the process of thinking about how could you ever know that? And what kind of moves do you have to make? And how is Roman culture mediated to us? And what kind of access do we have? And how can I find out about it? That's what's really interesting. It's and like, that's what your book enact. And that I think is what the the book tries to enact. And I think it's and it's uh, it's meant f it's meant not to be too difficult for you know, every every author always says this. It's meant not to be too difficult for a general audience. But it has a very particular message for a general audience because it's trying not to fob them off i think that when people particularly university academics when they write for people outside their own club they tend to think that what they have to do is be simple and more certain and their um, publishers always tell them they say what people want is a good story they don't want to be bothered by whether we know this or not though they want to know what happened right now my pledge to my general readership is that I'm not telling them a fib because any publisher told me they wanted it simple. I am trying to share with them the pleasure of finding out which seems to me to be as great as the pleasure of knowing. I was talking to Mary Beard whose latest book The Roman Triumph is available from Harvard University Press now. My guest on next week's programme will be Mark Linus whose book on the very alarming consequences of climate change, Six Degrees, has just won the Royal Society Science Book Prize. Until then, it only remains for me to thank you for listening and say goodbye until next time. Goodbye.